From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, we're learning from our esteemed veteran registered investment advisor, Adam Morse, and our human economic database and fearless CIO, Michael French. And today, we're talking about the tech bubble. Are we actually in a tech bubble? And if we are, what does that mean for the future of our economy? Michael and Adam break down whether or not they think we're actually in a tech bubble and also relate it to the last one we had back in the early 2000s.com era. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We love watching our numbers climb and climb every single week. Thank you so much for listening. And we also appreciate your emails. You can always email us with any questions or suggestions, and that's at podcast at assetbuilder.com. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Without further ado, let's get to the show. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Same. Doing doing really good today. So the weather's one- lovely. It's cooling down just a little bit. It's hey. my, my time of year. That's right. I'm, I'm actually able to sit outside, which is good today because every room in my house seems to be filled with a student who's on a Zoom call oh, man. who looks at me and says, Dad, can you be quiet? I'm like, yeah, I'm just trying to pay the bills, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll, my go kids, I'll go sit outside. My kids actually started going back, I want to say maybe last week or week before, but it's been, I'm not going to lie, it's been nice. I have at least a couple hours of silence every day where I can be productive, uninterrupted. So this is a perfect time for me. I'm sorry it's not for you, Michael, but this is great for me. I love my kids. <laughs> keep <laughs> yeah. saying it. Just Disclaimer, saying. we love our kids. Yeah. Disclaimer, that's right. <laughs> so are either of you invested in any tech stock currently right now? Do you have a little, any NASDAQ in your portfolios? Yes. Same. Nah, how are you feeling about that right now? Michael yeah. or Adam? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, this won't surprise anyone, but I, I don't get too, you know, wrapped around the axle on any short-term volatility. Um, I treat my investments like I talk about investments, which is I focus in the long term, and I just happen to know that you know volatility in the short term is part of the game. And you know, any positions I've held, I've held for a long time, and I'll continue to hold for a long time. Um, because I hold a lot of things. I, I index broadly. So do I like seeing my account balance go up and down, specifically down over the last couple of days? No. Uh, but am I losing sleep over it? Absolutely not. Michael, yep. what about you? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, so to be clear, when you said, do you own the NASDAQ or I forget what the question was to, to be, to be clear, if you own the S and P 500, you own a large part of the NASDAQ. If you right, own, right. you know, the, the largest NASDAQ, or the, sorry, the largest companies in the U.S. are the largest tech companies. So the FANG stocks, uh, if you own Microsoft, you know, you've, you've, you're invested in technology. Um, I think what we're trying to, to get to today is, is the bubble going to burst, right? Is there a bubble? First of all, you have to establish, is there a bubble? And second, you would then say, well, if there's a bubble, is it going to burst or is it, you know, and, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, just by calling something a bubble, you almost have to assume it's going to burst or else it's going to materialize into something that's real. So uh, personally, well, I feel good about what 
I own because it's not speculative stuff. There's, there's, you know, I yeah. don't own uh, companies that are hoping someday to produce a product. I own companies today that produce uh, real goods or services. So it's, I think right. a lot of times, you know, people, investors might have gotten comfortable with owning, for instance, um, Coke. Why? Well, because every time somebody popped a can, you were like, oh, I just made some money, unless it was a Pepsi, in which case you were like, hopefully diversified. Um, but today, every time somebody goes to Google, for instance, and Google collects information and then sells the information to advertisers, uh, you made money, you just maybe haven't thought about it that way. And so every time somebody watches a YouTube video, uh, there's a reason that YouTube can pay people to put ads on videos. Uh, I can't wait for the five seconds until I can skip the video because I'm not going to buy anything off YouTube. I don't care. I'm not going to make a political contribution. Um, by the way, I feel really good about what I watch on YouTube because I get uh, hit equally by both sides for my political contribution. So I'm pretty happy that YouTube hasn't figured out how I feel about elections. I feel nice. like I've fooled the algorithm. Um, but it, it, I don't think it's inappropriate as an investor to say, hey, I'm invested in servers or I'm invested in clouds or I'm invested in towers or uh, you know, I'm invested in hardware. Uh, if you're invested in Apple, I'm invested in data. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that because that is um, you know, kind of a, a big part it's of a big our part future. of the economy. Yeah, it's a big yeah. part of the current economy and a, a big part of the future. I think the question you have to ask is, what would I be willing to pay for any dollar of earnings ever, regardless of where it came from? And am I paying too much for that dollar of earnings? Right. And so that's exactly what a tech bubble is. And Michael, if you'd like to give us just sort of a textbook definition of what we're talking about when we're talking about a bubble or a tech bubble in this instance. Sure. So I, I think one of the things uh, that's important to remember is, you know, like we said, uh, you're, you're paying for a dollar of, of future earnings. And so um, one of the things that is interesting is like the Russell 2000, for instance, uh, when they give you, um, there, there were a lot of articles on, on this earlier this year that how the Russell 2000, which is not the same as the NASDAQ, obviously, um, when they calculate the P.E. ratio, um, they take out uh, companies that are losing money. So mm -hmm. uh, a negative earnings doesn't play into it. And yet there's a lot of companies that had, have negative earnings. Well, why is that important? Because back in 1999, let's say, uh, there were companies that would say, hey, I have a product that I'm going to sell online. And I'm going to, it's going to cost me $10 to sell this product for five, but I'm going to make it up in volume. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Every right. time you sell something, you lose money. What is the true value of that company? Well, let's say that they accumulate uh, a gajillion customers. And then somebody says, well, you know what? I want those gajillion customers. I will pay you some phenomenal price just for access to those customers. Well, even though that company never made any money, um, it was it would then have been worth something. Um, we've seen that in the financial services industry. Um, a lot of 
uh, a lot of robo advisors have been created and what they um, what they spend to gain clients is more than what they make now what ultimately may end up happening is that those robo advisors are acquired by large banks who say, well, if I could get those customers to become my customers, I could cross sell them products, have opportunities to make other money, uh, make money on them in other ways. A bubble, what a bubble is, is when the price of those companies that are not profitable are not making any money, when ultimately nothing pans out. They don't right. have an exit strategy. You don't have a plan B. Right. Well, then what ends up happening is the value just kind of evaporates as the stock price trades down and people begin to lose confidence that the company will ever uh, be worth more than it is today. So, you know, for a lot of these companies, they were venture funded. Uh, people came in and said, I'm going to invest this money and I believe that you guys will maybe eventually figure out how to be profitable or how right. to sell yourselves. You have to have some sort of exit strategy. And so the bubble, the bubble was revealed when it was revealed that no exit strategy or no strategy to profitability existed. And now you're talking about the 2000.com uh, bubble. And Adam, I think that would be an interesting point to talk about. Do you, how, yeah. how, do, you, how do you think this tech bubble, as it were, um, mm-hmm. compares to the tech bubble back then? Yeah, so, you know, when you asked Michael to define what a tech bubble is, I don't necessarily think a bubble is a bubble is a bubble, right? So now I think what's important is to kind of look at what is the the driver of, if we're in a bubble, what's the driver of the bubble? Right, right. I think there's a discrepancy between what we're seeing today and what we saw back in 1999 and 2000. Right. Back in 99 and 2000, the internet was brand new. So we were seeing investors not only a growth in individual investors investing into the market, but it was for any investor, institutional or retail, it was their first kind of interaction with companies that were based around the economy of the internet. What Michael was just describing, and let's use robo-investors as an example. The reason why most of these companies are venture-funded is because the upfront costs to build a company based around the internet, which what that really means is based around software in some measure, the upfront fixed costs are very high. You have to build the thing, the, whatever it is you're offering, whether it's Google building their search engine or YouTube or Facebook building their network, whatever the case is, you have to build it first before you ever know if you're gonna be able to generate revenue off of it. And that's a big bet, okay? Yeah. Because all these internet companies are based on one thing, and that's scale, right? Yeah. You have to reach scale. That's the right. bet these robo-advisors made, is that we're going to offer smaller amounts of value to each individual client because we're not going to be meeting with them. We're not going to be talking to them. We really can't have any personal interaction with them. But we're going to offer that smaller amount of value to a much larger number of people at the end of the day because the internet means that our our addressable market is essentially as big as you want it to be. The problem with that is you have all this upfront investment, all this upfront fixed cost leveraged on the assumption that we're going to reach scale. Well, what happens if we don't reach scale? What happens if we're wrong and you know we can't cross that penny gap or the value we think we're offering customers or investors is not there? In 99, 2000, I think 
investors didn't understand that economy. They were they were looking at these companies and analyzing them using their assumptions they'd used to analyze companies like Coca-Cola or JCPenney or you know these brick and mortar companies that were founded on the real world. Mm-hmm. Well, tech companies are very different from the ground up. And so right. understanding that, I think, and learning that was a very difficult thing for, for the market to do in 99 and 2000. I think today, now I still think there are a lot of investors that don't really understand kind of the, the intricacies behind a company based around the internet and the, the economy of the internet. Mm-hmm. But I think today... It's not just tech companies that we're seeing with historically high PE ratios. It's it's across the equity market. And so I think you have to kind of look below the surface and what the driver of that would be, as opposed to just this assumption that all stocks are. I think it's kind of the only game in town. And Michael, maybe you have a different opinion, maybe you disagree. But I think a lot of this is, well, where else can investors go? I mean, where yeah. else in the market can we go to get a decent return? Interest rates are at the floor. I mean, if you're a U.S.-based investor, I don't have much option. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. I think that there's um, a lot of people who are looking to put their money to work. Um, We've talked about this in previous podcasts, the number of uh, retail accounts that were opened during the early part of this year where, uh, you know, individuals opened accounts and started trading. Um, and what did you buy when you went in? You know, some of them bought index funds. Well, every time you buy an index fund, you're buying these technology companies. Uh, not, not every index fund, but for the most part, uh, but any mutual fund, fund really, yeah, is going to have some Apple, some, some Netflix. Um, so yeah, I think like it, those, those all get driven up in value every time a dollar gets invested in some sort of neutral market. And then, um, you know, like Adam said, a lot of companies right now are trading at high P ratios. And uh, in, in, it's just, I think one of the questions that we've talked about is low interest rates, but also Fed money. Every time the Fed puts money into the system, every time, you know, when people got stimulus checks, a lot of people needed them. A lot of people needed to go out and pay rent and buy buy food and groceries, but a lot of people didn't. And mm-hmm. so, you know, what are you going to do with that? Well, most people, most people who are are listening to this are probably invested in the market, but there are a lot of people who would say, I didn't go open an account. I, I just put it in savings. Okay. Well, what do you think your bank did with that money? What do you think? You know, the reserve requirements for a bank right. means that they yeah. might keep 10 cents, but the other 90 cents gets invested. How do you think they invest right. it? Bank isn't just putting it in a vault so that Scrooge McDuck can dive into it every night. And so right. that means that that money went into something. It got invested somewhere. So I do think that there's, you know, there's a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of people who are looking around saying, well, where can I make something, um, you know, interest rates near zero. Uh, the Fed says we're going to keep them there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with Adam that people are, are looking uh, far and wide to see how they can make some money. 
Right. And that, and the reason we're talking about this today is because obviously earlier earlier in the month, the NASDAQ, uh, which has all 10 of the big tech stocks, um, dropped you know roughly 10%. Now, since then, it has rallied, but it has caused speculation among investors like, are we on a, in, a, in a tech bubble? And so that, that's that's kind of why we're talking about this today. But the subject of interest rates comes up, and maybe you guys can clear this up for me. Um, so when the Fed lowers the interest rates down to near zero, does that is that are they people to put money in stocks instead? Is that is that sort of the idea behind that? I don't think that. Well, that's not their direct goal, but I think that's a byproduct of the policy. Their their goal is to stimulate economic activity, whether that be. Uh, you know, people going out and getting private debt to purchase cars or homes or whatever. Oh, okay. Um, whether it's largely companies going out and and getting credit to to grow their businesses, to invest in their businesses and new markets, and so it's it's designed to do that. Now, I think though one of the knock on effects is so. For instance, let's look at the retiree market. Right, retirees historically, what do they want to do? You know, my grandmother travel when when I was well, true, but I'm talking about from an investment <laughs> standpoint. My grandmother, when I was coming up, the way she taught me was CDs, 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 because she mm-hmm. came up in this world in her earning years where she could buy a CD for fourteen percent, fifteen percent, and she never had to do anything else. Insane. And that's historically what retirees wanted to do. They weren't interested in the volatility that comes with investing in equities and stocks. So. Today, though, you have the retiree market, which is bigger than, and it's going to continue to grow for the next, whatever it is, Michael, 17, 18 years. It's going to continue to grow at this unprecedented rate as the baby boomers continue to age into retirement. And they have all this private wealth that's been locked up in their 401ks, and they're going to invest it because they need to generate income in retirement. Well, historically, where would they have gone? They would have gone largely to bonds, CDs. Instruments of low risk that would pay out a stable income, a stable dividend, a stable interest rate, whatever the case is. Well, today, where can they go? Mm-hmm. If you put it in CDs today, you're gonna you're gonna run out of money. You're not gonna be able to generate enough return to sustain your portfolio. So you have all of this historical non-equity demand that is now equity demand, which is a byproduct of low interest rates. And and you think, Adam, this is why we're having this sort of run to tech now? I mean, we've always obviously always had a run to, a run to tech, but do you feel like well, that's I, I, I think that we might be starting from a faulty premise, which is are we in a tech bubble? I think the better question is are we in an equity bubble? Because mm-hmm. I don't I, in other words, I don't think people are running to tech stocks specifically because they're tech. I think people are running to stocks, and the more people you have, if you look at fund flows. People are leaving managed funds, going into index funds, and by default, when you're buying index funds, and really still, like I said, any mutual fund, you're buying these tech stocks. So mm-hmm. I, I really don't know if there's a, and again, this is my perception, but I, mm-hmm. I don't perceive that investors are flocking to tech stocks as a function of them being tech stocks. Mm-hmm. I think they're just they're running to equities for return, and because tech stocks have become the biggest companies in our economy. They're by default owning tech stocks. Now, Michael, I'm I'm reminded of a similar conversation that we've had on this podcast about the index bubble. Are we are we having the same conversation right now? Yeah, in a way we are. I mean, I think if you asked if you asked the average person, hey, uh, let's take the S and P 
500 and compare it to the NASDAQ 100. Uh, how much overlap is there in the stocks that, 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 that are held in those companies? I don't think the average investor could tell you. Like, so the, the, the top 10 stocks uh, in the Dow Jones, for, in, in, for instance, are, uh, I think, account for like over 50% of the value. Mm-hmm. And in the NASDAQ 100, the top 10 stocks also account for over 50% of the value. And there's a lot of overlap in what those stocks are. So when, when we talk about, is there a bubble, you know, Adam's point, is there a bubble is, is maybe a question of, is there an equity bubble, uh, not just, is there a tech bubble? Because if you said, well, there's a tech bubble, it's not just the NASDAQ, it's also the S&P 500, it's also the Dow Jones. Now, one of the big differences is um, let me look. There's a there's actually something that I want to get right when I when I use a number here. But the percentage of uh, the S and P 500 that is made up, up by these top five companies is significantly less. I think it's like 22 percent. I'll find the number. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, okay. Versus for the Nasdaq, it is uh, nearly 50 percent. And so there's there's a big difference there in that, well, I'm investing. Um, yeah. OK, so the FANG stocks um, are different in their weighting. So in uh, the NASDAQ, they account for 48 percent of the NASDAQ 100. So the top five stocks account for 48 percent of the total value of the NASDAQ 100. Um, but they're just 22% of the S&P 500. So when, for instance, when the value of Netflix goes down, it has a larger effect on a NASDAQ investor than it does on an S&P investor. But you mm-hmm. both own Netflix. The Netflix portion of what you own it's bigger, right. went down. Yeah, oh. it's just it was a bigger portion of your NASDAQ portfolio. And so okay. I think to Adam's point, the, the real question might be, well, OK, step outside of the things that overlap, you know, the things that are a part of any investor's portfolio, if you're invested in the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ. If you look down beneath those large companies, are those next level of companies, are they overvalued or are they fairly valued? And so what you're what you're trying to answer there then becomes more a question of, OK, our office is currently closed. We're working from home. We've got kids. Some of us have adapted to the new life. And we're like, this is pretty awesome. Some of us are like, when is the office opening again? I need to 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 go back to, you know, the Keurig coffee machine at the office instead of the Keurig at home. Whatever your whatever your thing is, you may you may never want to be on another Zoom call in your life. Or you may have said, you know what? Zoom is the way to go. I'm never going to have another face-to-face meeting if I can avoid it. Um, you know, churches on Sundays, the churches that are reopening, um, they're seeing a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'll show up. And I don't care if it's humid and 85 degrees outside. I would rather meet in person. And then there are some people who are like, wait, we're still going to stream these services, right? Because I love just kicking it on a couch with maybe the family next door. Right, uh, right. You know, that's my community now. So it's it's not yet clear that Zoom or the technology that allows us to stream services live on Sundays or, you know, 
connect digitally, it's not yet clear if we're going to greatly reduce our reliance on those services as we come out of a pandemic, or are we going to say, oh, that's the new normal? So am I ever going to go to the mall again? Uh, I hate the mall. So, you know, no, no. I'm never going to go again. But are my kids. My kids, we, we live near uh, uh, a shopping center. It's the Domain in Austin. They can kind of walk there, walk-ish. Um, they want to go there and hang out. You know, they just want to be with their friends in not our backyard or a friend's backyard or at somebody's pool. They want to be over there. So I'm not sure that they're real consumers because if they are, I'd like to know where they got the money. But <laughs> they do enjoy being there. And I think there are a lot of people, uh, you know, I've driven over there, uh, taken them, picked them up. And you see a lot of people who are like, shopping or at least wandering around wanting to be social. And so I think the question of, hey, does H&M, does Zara, does Macy's, does, uh, you know, Nordstrom's, do these companies go online and sell less, you know, merchandise? Uh, do they, do they, uh, do companies like Pottery Barn and Restoration Hardware, do they continue to make a ton of money because people are like, nesting and spending all their money on making their home a nice place because that's where they're spending all their time now. We don't know the answer to those things going forward. And so if these companies continue to grow, if we, if we, you know, go back to eating at Cheesecake Factory, Cheesecake Factory will be fine. If we say, you know mm -hmm. what, I can make cheesecake at home. Cheesecake Factory is going to have to figure out how to either deliver to our house or put their products in grocery stores so that we can pick them up there and serve them at home. So I think there's just a lot of unanswered questions before you can get to, yes, these companies are way overvalued. Now, Adam, going forward, just like Michael was saying, what what's going to happen, do you think, now I realize we're speculating here, but what do you think will happen um, as, in terms of a tech bubble possibly bursting when interest rates are uh, brought back to normal again? Well, I mean, who knows when that'll be. The Fed just came out yesterday and said, you know, we're looking at, I think it was 2023 um, at least, unless inflation goes above 2% first and then they'll raise rates. So who knows when that will be? Um, I do think at some point, and again, I'm going to keep making this point. I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't speak just to tech stocks, I would speak to equities in general. Mm -hmm. I think equity prices will come down at some point. Now, I, I wouldn't, if rates go up, obviously it's not any big prediction to say equity prices will drop. I think that needs to happen at some point just for the health of our economy. I do mm -hmm. think PE ratios are high. I, I think you're having to spend more and more for that dollar of earnings, that dollar of growth. And so your net returns going down. Now, do I think that's unique to tech stocks? No, and to further that comparison to to O to ninety nine, another difference is now I'm going to reference here a one of my I, I check this website every single day. It's a blog called Stratechery, and it's written by a guy named Ben Thompson, and he's one of my favorite kind of business analysts, and he focuses on the tech industry, and he's a huge proponent of something called aggregation theory, and I'll I'll find a couple of his best articles in aggregation theory. And I'll send them to you, Jared. You can put them in the show notes. 
So I'd encourage anyone listening to this to go check that out because we could spend easily four or five episodes talking about aggregation theory at least. But essentially what he is speaking about is the nature of the internet. The fact that if you're a company based around the internet, your supply is essentially unlimited, right? And you essentially have zero marginal costs. So what I mean by that is whether mm-hmm. whether there's five people on YouTube or a billion people on YouTube, the costs to build YouTube mm-hmm. have already been spent. So what is their main objective? Their main objective is to take those fixed costs that they put into building YouTube and get as many users on it as possible so they can leverage those costs over all of those users. What that leads to and this is kind of the crux of aggregation theory, is winner-take-all effects. In 99, the internet was just coming into its own, so it was kind of the Wild West. You had all of these companies starting up, and not only did investors not really understand what the, the nature of the internet meant for business, but a lot of these businesses didn't know what the nature of the internet meant for these businesses. And essentially, these businesses, all all these startups had the same goal. It was to get big as fast as possible. Who cares about profit? Just spend to grow, spend Mm -hmm. to advertise, spend to get eyeballs. At the time, though, no one knew who was going to win out because this was all new. From a macro standpoint, I just think we're in a fundamentally different place in that cycle where we, we largely know who these winners have been to this point. And it's your fang stocks. It's your Facebooks. It's your Google, it's your Windows, it's your Apple. Because if you look at a lot of the tech companies today, what do they do? And I'm not talking about hardware so much like your AMDs and your chip companies, but your pure tech companies, they're largely built around operating within one of those companies' ecosystems, correct? Right. You're either building something that goes onto iOS, you're building something that is optimized for Google. So I just think the tech industry is a little bit more of a, a stable foundational place than it was back in 99 2000. So I think to assume that what we saw happen in 99 and 2000 is going to happen again, I think is just unlikely. Michael, please mute that bird. <laughs> Sorry about the bird. Are you investing in uh, exotic birds, Michael? I am. <laughs> I have found that that is oh, the way no. to go. That's funny. I took, I took my <laughs> advice from Adam Morris, super oh, advisor. No. <laughs> you might need to go listen to one of our episodes. We, uh, we actually <laughs> talked about exotic birds, and uh, it doesn't end well. Oh, crud. He just flew away. <laughs> there goes my investment. So, Adam, in the tech bubble in the 2000s, was it now you're making the case that it's a more of a it could be more of an equity bubble than a tech and that was not the case in the 2000 bubble is that correct it was specifically tech yes correct okay okay correct and it was largely based on the fact that the assumption was all of these companies are going to win right they're all going to win the price kept going up there was no way that people were going to lose because they it was the beginning of that that industry, people didn't have any any understanding of what it was going to look like long term. It was everyone's going to win. I think today we we have a better understanding of who are the main players and what does that ecosystem look like. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean they still can't be overvalued, but I think to say that we're going to have a tech bubble that looks largely like we did ninety it, like it did ninety nine is is probably not going to happen. Now, do you think they're overvalued right now? I think if you look at history, you'd have to say yes. 
Okay. But the question would be, is this, is this the new normal? Is this just what it costs now to buy that future growth? Um, I don't know if anyone has the answer to that. But if, if I had to give you an answer, I would say, yes, I think they're overvalued. Now, Michael, what is the difference between a bubble bursting and just like a small correction? Because, you know, in September, the NASDAQ dropped 10%. That's not really a bubble bursting. But what, so what would it have to take in order to be considered a bursting of a bubble? How dramatic does that drop have to be? Or is there an answer to that I, question? I, th- I think, well, A, it's semantics, right? There's not a, I don't think there's a, a class, okay. a finance class where they're like, and this is what a, like we, I think like we have terms like correction in bear markets where there are percentages. Um, but the way I would describe it is if a bubble bursts, it means that's not coming back. Okay. That, uh, so for instance, pets.com, the bubble burst in pets.com was gone. The sock puppet was for sale uh, on eBay. It, it's, it's done. And so, uh, you know, you think about a bubble bursting, it's no longer around. Go chase something else. Um, so that's, that's the way I would describe it, is that when we get to a place where uh, we acknowledge, hey, this is, this is done now, by that measure, the bubble never burst on the internet because, you know, uh, there was a shakeout. And while, uh, you know, uh, name some companies that didn't survive, uh, Amazon absolutely did. Um, there's an advertisement right now that says for every Amazon, there was a something for every Netflix, there was a something. And so I, I think that's the, you know, will we continue to have corrections? Sure. Does that mean that, you know, you need to get out and you need to make sure that you don't own large sections of the economy? Like, do you want to not own Apple? Do you want to not own the iPhone 15 when it comes out? Uh, do you want to not own the routers and the, the, the cables that are connecting the world? I don't think so. I don't think that makes any sense. Um, do you maybe not want to put all your eggs in that basket? Probably a good idea. Probably a good idea to be somewhat mm-hmm. measured in your investment, somewhat diversified. Um, which really, that's what it comes down to is, mm-hmm. uh, do I still want to be a diversified investor? I think you do. Is there somebody making an argument for, hey, whatever you do, don't diversify? Let's talk to that guy because I'd like to get, you know, <laughs> kind of that that take on it. Why, why do you have that view of it? But, you know, I mean, we continue to kind of be in the place where we would say, Hey, be diversified. Uh, make sure that you're, uh, investing in a variety of industries, not just in tech and, um, be thoughtful about how you diversify. Like I said, if, if you think, well, I've bought the NASDAQ and the S and P, those aren't correlated at all. Uh, you're very wrong. And so, you know, talk to somebody who can give you the guidance if you don't, if you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself, um, figure out what it is that you're trying to accomplish and then, uh, and then work to implement the strategy. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's the main point, right? Is we can sit here and speculate all day on, is there going to, are we in a bubble? Is the bubble going to burst? What's the burst going to look like if it bursts? And that's, don't get me wrong, I find those conversations as interesting as anyone, 
but ultimately I think at the end of the day, you have to say, okay, well, what do I do about that? Like in light of that information, what's the best way to handle it? And I think it's what Michael just outlined is let's just assume that at some point things are going to go down and that other things are going to go up when these things are going down. And, and what does that mean for me? It means you should be diversified. It means you should not put all of your eggs in one basket, mm-hmm. bottom line. <laughs> and that's what we preach week after week after week on this podcast is no one knows the future. We know things are going to go down. Diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. And we'll keep preaching it. That's right. Guys, anything else you'd like to add? I don't have anything. <laughs> I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it would be so nice to be able to record two podcasts and one say, it's going to crash, and the other one say, it's going <laughs> to up. Yep. And then we uh, wait six months, and we post-date one, and we throw it up here. And we say, ha ha. And, you know, we that's just right. not who we are. This, what we do is we remind you that, hey, nobody knows the future. What you're supposed to be doing is diversifying so that you're well positioned. No um, matter what happens. To, to be in the market, no matter what happens. And, and that should be your goal as an investor. So it, it would we, be gratifying to be able to do that. But I do, you know, there's plenty of places people can go if they want to see the guy hitting the button that says buy this, sell that. The market's inundated with those people and those sources of of entertainment and media. You know, I'm proud of what we we do here because it's not sexy. It's not super exciting, but it is true. Mm -hmm. So I think it's I I think it's it's good that we're saying it. I, I hope people will take heed. Perfect. I think that's a good place to end. Awesome. All right. We'll talk to you guys again next week. Thank you very much, guys. We'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye, guys. If you have a question for either Michael or Adam concerning this topic or anything else, please visit assetbuilder.com slash podcast. There you can find their contact information as well as the show notes for every single episode. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com.